I'm Marianne Kolbesak McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. I'm here at HIMS 19 speaking with Attorney Elise Sweeney Anthony, Executive Director of Policy at the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT. So now, Elise, both ONC and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services this week released proposed rules aimed at bolstering interoperable and secure health information exchange. What do you consider to be the highlights for ONC's proposals, especially as they relate to advancing secure access and exchange of health data? So we're really excited to release this rule, which implements uh, Congress's Title IV of the 21st Century Cures Act. And we include a number of provisions that advance patient access to their electronic health information through the information blocking provisions, as well as through updates to our certification program. And our certification program addresses developers who come in and want to be have, have their technology certified to certain capabilities. And in that, we support the movement of information, and we say if you're going to move information, we want to make sure that you're doing it in the right way and we include components on that but we also include components uh, to facilitate the movement of information in more innovative ways and that includes through provisions we include on application programming interfaces without special effort and that language was added in by Congress without special effort and it's critical because that's really what we focus on in terms of the role getting the information where it needs to go appropriately and securely and that is one of the mechanisms we're doing that through. Now, how do the ONC and the CMS proposed rules align? We work very closely with CMS. In fact, we always have, um, all the way back to the days of stage one, stage two of the EHR incentive programs. Um, in these two rules, they work together because the I, they identified standards that ONC uses, for example, FHIR, and thinking about the standards that need to support the movement of information, such as our new standard that we're proposing, called the United States Core Data for Interoperability Standard, those are echoed in CMS's rules. So when CMS is talking about more more information moving to the patient, they align with the standards that we create or propose to create in our rule. And just to talk a little bit about the U.S. core data for interoperability, it's basically a set of data that we think is critical to move in an interoperable way to support clinician care and patient care, and patients being part of their care continuum. And we expect that what we put in is a great basis for that. We start with the CCDS, which is our old common clinical data set, and we expand on that, including things even like notes, clinical notes, so that those would be available to the patient as well. Now, the proposals from ONC include the information blocking provisions that were called for under the 21st Century Cures Act. What's a prime example of the kind of information blocking that we see today involving healthcare providers or insurers that will be scorned upon? And what's a prime type of example of information blocking that ONC wants to prohibit involving health IT product providers? So first, let me start with um, who is covered by the information blocking provisions. And there's four groups of actors, and those are the actors that Congress laid out for us. So Congress says that healthcare providers, health information exchanges, health information networks, and certified health IT developers, those are the actors in information blocking. And that means that those are the, the groups that can be held as information blockers. So those are the groups that we would cover. And what Congress is, they identified and defined information blockers 
blocking. Our job at ONC was to identify the exceptions to information blocking. In other words, information should absolutely move to support patient care, patient involvement in their care, and providers having the information they need to provide care. There may be some situations where information doesn't move, and what should those look like? And that's what Congress asked us to look at, and we defined seven exceptions to that. Some are focused on safety, security, privacy, and then some are focused on uh, areas of fees to make sure that where fees are being charged, that they are reasonably identified, and that where licensing is required to help information to move, that that is also done under what's called RAND terms, uh, reasonable and non-discriminatory terms. Um, in terms of the type of blocking that we see, to get all the way back to your question, I just want to provide like the, the groundwork that gets to that. We have heard about a lot, many different types of information blocking, and we have the pleasure of working with stakeholders who have come in to talk to not only us, but talk to the Office of the Inspector General uh, at HHS, which is responsible, which will be responsible for enforcing the information blocking provisions in Section 4004 of the 21st Century Cures Act. So the types that we've seen, all types. We've, se we've heard about some that involve developers. We've heard about some that involve a hospital system, for example, who might have different policies, potentially easier policies for a provider who has, you know, um, privileges at that hospital, for example, to get the electronic health information. But if you're not part of that provider, that hospital system, or if you are uh, a individual practitioner, it might be harder for you to get that information. Or maybe there's particular interface fees that apply. Those types of things are what we have heard about. Our goal through the proposed rule is to see if what we've heard is all that's out there, to see if the exceptions that we've included, the seven, are the right seven, are the additional ones we should consider, or are there some adjustments we need to, to make to the seven that we have in place. As you mentioned, among the seven are two exceptions, one for privacy, one for security. What would be examples of privacy or security sort of activities that aren't information blocking that, you know, people could say, hey, that's information blocking, but maybe it's not? Let me do you one better. Let me talk a little bit about how those two exceptions are set up. Those two exceptions, in fact, all seven of the exceptions, are set up with the presumption that information should move and that where information can't move one way, that perhaps the actor is trying to find an alternate way to do that. For example, if there is a, a infeasibility is one of the exceptions, and we say in that exception that where you can't move the information because it's not feasible to move, it may be based upon your structure or your system, that did you find an alternate way to do that. So when it comes to the privacy and security exceptions, we very much align with HIPAA. And we note that our goal is to encourage the flow of information where appropriate, but also to be respectful of applicable law. So there might be state laws or there might be federal law that says that information shouldn't move. But where the, the laws allow for the movement of information, what are the policies that you have in place that support that movement? And again, these would be enforced by the Office of the Inspector General. So our goal is to provide some additional information that they can use to consider as they are evaluating these information blocking complaints, and that's what the exceptions would do. In terms of the privacy exception, it's not just meeting the exception 
umbrella, but you have to look at some of the elements underneath that exception that you would have to meet. And some of the things we look at are what are the potential applicable laws that are in place. But we also consider the overall case-by-case -case analysis. So making sure that if you are claiming that you did not send the information to a provider, did you already have policies in place that said, in these particular cases of providers, you won't send the information? Or is it possible that an actor is using the privacy laws or the security laws or technical capacity as proffers, reasons why they can't move the information, but it's not really the legitimate reason. And that's one of the things that I think we heard a lot about and we tried to address. And so you mentioned that OIG would be enforcing the information blocking law or rules. And again, there seems to be some crossover with HIPAA and OCR gets involved with that. How do you strike a balance between you know HIPAA and information flowing and it's not information blocking, but maybe it is? Like, How is this going to be all sorted out? Yeah, I think HHS as an entity, under HHS you have OIG, you have Office of Civil Rights who manages HIPAA, you have ONC, as well as all of the other wonderful agencies that work on behalf of the public. We all work together. So when we were developing this rule, we worked very closely with OCR um, to make sure that what we were putting in was aligned with HIPAA. So I think as OIG goes forward, there's opportunities uh, for us to provide technical assistance. We're helpful as they are evaluating the information blocking complaints. And of course, I think the public state stakeholders who we hope will comment on our rule will have an opportunity to tell us whether we hit the right spots or whether there's some adjustment that needs to be made. And what sort of potential penalties would there be for information blocking? Great question. So Congress actually lays that out pretty well, and in depth, I should say. So there's two sets. The first set applies to health information networks, health information exchanges, and then the certified health IT developers. And under Section 4004, those three actors uh, can be held a fines of up to $1 million per violation. And that would be determined by the Office of the Inspector General. For providers, the penalty structure is a little bit different. And what Congress has called for is for the Secretary to apply appropriate disincentives if information blocking has been found. Um, and that's something we're still working on as an agency to identify what are the right um, levers or the disincentives that should be applied in those cases. Last January, ONC released a draft of its Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement, or TEFCA, which aims to also help improve data flow and also care coordination. What is the status of that? Is this part is that part of the rules that were proposed or is this something separate? Actually, it's not part of the rules we propose. The TEFCA framework is not a regulatory construct. However, we do plan to post, as required by 21st Century Cures, the final common agreement, which would attach to that, and that would be posted in the Federal Register. Uh, right now, we are reviewing the comments we received. We received over 200 comments, and we're so thankful to the public for all the work that they did to develop those comments. So we released draft one in January of 2018. We're reviewing those comments. We are updating the draft now. And uh, as Dr. Rocker, the National Coordinator for Health IT, mentioned, we plan to release the second draft um, soon. And that second draft will take into consideration the comments that we've heard and put out another draft for public comment. We want to make sure that we're engaging the public as much as possible on any policy that we're putting together. So we think it's a great opportunity for us to make sure that we captured what the public said on the first round. 
And also in the ONC proposals, there's a proposal for new privacy and security transparency attestation certification criteria, which would identify whether certified health IT support encrypting authentication credentials and or multi-factor authentication. Tell us a little bit about that. Why did you include that and what would you expect? Yeah, we're um, excited to include those in and we look forward to hearing from the public in terms of whether those are the right criteria that we should add in. We heard a lot from our uh, previous Federal Advisory Committee. We have a new one that was stood up under the 21st Century Cures Act called the Health Information Technology Advisory Committee. Our previous ones were the Health Information Technology Policy Committee and Standards Committee. And those were some of the, I the items that they identified would be helpful to the sector. So we included those and we look forward to receiving comments. Would that help with phishing attacks and those sorts of things that we've been seeing if potentially the EHR products have these multi-factor or encrypted authentication? Well, I think that's something that we want to hear from the public about. Um, I think our goal is to include these in there. You know, Dr. Rucker talks a lot about the importance of authentication and that being part of kind of the new world of how health information moves. So we would be looking to the public to see whether what we've included there in terms of the criteria would help with those types of scenarios. And finally, what's next for the proposed rules? When might we see final rules? Uh, that is the million dollar question. We've been getting a lot of the, that question and I think it's a, an, an entirely fair question. What we're focused on right now is um, having just released the rules, is starting the public comment process which will start once the rule is published in the Federal Register, uh, receiving the comments that come in and based upon the number and the amount of comments we receive, then we would move towards our final. We don't have a date right now, but we're hoping to get it out as quickly as we can. Thanks, Elise. I've been speaking to Elise Sweeney-Anthony of ONC. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.